0: Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Friday, February 16th, day 133 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel, Dan here with our political correspondent Tal Schneider and culture editor, Jessica Steinberg, whom you also know as my Daily Briefing co-host. Hello to you both this rainy Friday morning.
1: Hi, Amanda. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Tal. Hey, Amanda.
0: We will hear about a middle-of-the-night tweet from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll learn how hostages' families are ramping up their efforts since negotiations have stalled. We'll hear how members of the Knesset feel about Haredi ultra-Orthodox conscription and what Jessica observed during a week in the United States. All this and much, much more when we're back. First, some headlines. The IDF announced a soldier was killed fighting in southern Gaza, raising the death toll in the ground offensive against Hamas to 234. On Thursday, several top Biden administration officials held a roundtable discussion with young leaders in the Jewish, Arab and Muslim American communities in New York. Tal, amid growing tensions between the two leaders, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and U.S. President Joe Biden again spoke by phone last night for 40 minutes. They talked about the hostages, they talked about the Rafah operation, and the next stage in the fight against Hamas, and of course talked about the humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. What's interesting is that after the call, several hours after the call, Netanyahu released a statement in in the middle of the night, insisting that Israel will not be pressured into accepting a Palestinian state. Why do you think that Netanyahu felt the need to release this middle-of-the-night tweet, Tal?
3: Right, Amanda. So when we said this is going to be our conversation, I just googled Netanyahu um, against Palestinian state Twitter, and then came up a story from like, almost 10 years ago, saying, Netanyahu, I am insisting there will be never a Palestinian state. So this is a repeating theme between Netanyahu and any administration. It's, it's nothing new, but it's interesting to me that he tweeted that only in Hebrew and only on his political Twitter account. He did not write it in English or Arabic, and he did not write it on the prime minister page. So it's not that, you know, everybody translated and everybody knows what he's saying. It's nothing new. But um we all also understand that this is part of his politics. Um so it's it's very crucial to him to make sure for his co-partners in, in this government, specifically the extreme partners, uh, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, the finance minister and the um, homeland security minister, it's very important to him to clear to them that there is nothing going on in with respect to a Palestinian state. This is major politics here. They are doing almost nothing with respect to policymaking. The only thing they're doing is making statements with respect to that.
0: Let me just read out Netanyahu's statement that our colleague Lazer Behrman translated last night just so everyone has it in English too. He said, my positions can be summarized in the following two sentences. Israel categorically rejects international dictates regarding a permanent settlement with the Palestinians. Such an arrangement will be reached only through direct negotiations between the parties without preconditions." Now, if we're talking about negotiations, of course, as we mentioned yesterday on the podcast with David Horowitz, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ruled out sending an Israeli delegation for further hostage negotiations in Cairo yesterday. And he apparently made this decision without consulting the war cabinet. So I wonder, Tal, has there been any blowback from Netanyahu taking this unilateral decision yet?
3: There is a blowback because it goes against what he agreed with Benny Gantz and Gadi Isaacot when they entered the government on October 10th, uh, right, you know, a couple of days after the, the massacre. They agreed to take all of the uh, military or, um, you know, state issues, diplomatic issues as a decision together. And he's doing it uh, without even updating them. So they were furious. Netanyahu then promised not to do that again and then he did it again in in 24 hours just just this week so according to some things that we are being briefed on from from their own party from their own faction they are considering what to do next you know whether to step out of the government or not obviously it's a tough tough decision because if you are part of the hostages families you definitely don't want guns and icing out of there because they are like the saviors of them at the moment. But I have to tell you, it's, um, it's not politics as usual. It's very, very difficult this time. Uh, as we all know, we might have another big military maneuver in the northern part of the country. Uh, and it's a problem for those two ex-generals to step out at that, that, you know, such a crucial time.
0: Jessica, we're seeing ramped up measures from the hostages' families, including last night, I believe there was shackling in uh, the Tel Aviv Army headquarters. They shackled themselves to a gate, as far as I understand. So what are you hearing out of the hostages' forum uh, these days, but specifically yesterday?
1: Well, actually, even before yesterday, uh, some hostage families went to The Hague in the Netherlands to file a war crimes claim against Hamas. That was, you know, it's an effort. It brings a lot of people out. Obviously, they flew there with members of, you know, these volunteers of the Hostages Forum in order to, again, say that this is what's going on. Uh, These were war crimes. Our loved ones are still in Gaza, and we're not seeing any you know, sort of any change in having them be released. Um, and then, of course, as you point out, Thursday night, last night, um, this was basically announced after what Tal just spoke about, after Netanyahu put an end to the negotiations. The hostages forum and the families put a call out saying, we're going to gather at the Kirya, at the defense ministry headquarters in Tel Aviv. Uh, some of them chained themselves to the gate. Uh, Ruby Khan, the father of hostage Itay Khan, you know, he made this very plaintive uh, comment. He said, "You know, uh, you need to be there in Cairo until a deal is signed." You know, and, and he is a U.S. citizen. This father um Ruby Khan he said sometimes it feels as if the as a US citizen that the US wants to deal more than the government of Israel and he called on the war cabinet that we just spoke about he called on the war cabinet to prove him wrong then the families marched over to Kikar HaTufim to hostages Square which is about an 8 minute walk from the defense ministry headquarters and there um there have been people who were there throughout the day, including Danny Elgarat, his brother of another hostage, uh, Itzik Elgarat, and he basically had been there throughout the day, he was saying, on a partial hunger strike, essentially eating what he, what, what we now know some of the hostages get, you know, a bit of pita with a little bit of cheese spread on it, and he said, I'm going to be here until something changes. So now it's Friday, uh, and then we have another rally Tomorrow night at Hostages Square, um, it will be this. It will be the 16th week of these rallies that are organized by the the Hostages and Missing Families Forum, where again the messages are ramped up, especially in a week like this where there were the talks, there were the talks, they were happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, where are we now? And that's that's how the hostages' families feel. They feel that every day, every minute, every hour. Something can happen that their loved ones will be killed, possibly by an Israeli missile strike, possibly by terrorists in ways that they don't necessarily even know. And there hasn't been word about their loved ones in weeks and days. So that's where they're left hanging.
0: I have to say, I had chills when you talked about the hunger strike and experiencing what his brother is experiencing. And there's another relative of a hostage who is bringing that forward through a new virtual reality initiative. Tell us very briefly about this as well.
1: Sure. So one of the hostages is Shlomi Ziv. He's 40. He was uh, part of the security detail at the Supernova Party. Um, and his cousin, his he's married, he doesn't have kids. Um, his wife's family had several people who were also killed at the Nova party. Um, and his cousin essentially put together this virtual reality experience with a virtual reality company here in Israel to show what a day in captivity looks like. So they used GoPro footage from the Hamas terrorists and footage uh, from phones of survivors of the Nova Party to sort of build up that day to show what it looked like from the party and then being suddenly taken hostage and what it might look like in some space in the tunnel. And they want to bring that to world leaders to sit there for six minutes and look and feel the terror of what it feels like to be a hostage.
2: And so that's their effort.
0: We'll go to short break.
2: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines, massacre in Gaza, genocide perpetrated by Hamas, no, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing, this stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise, and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And we're back. Tal, let's turn to another flashpoint issue in Israeli society. And this is, of course, the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi conscription. And you conducted a really special project and turned to all 120 members of Knesset to hear their thoughts on the issue. So I wonder, did you find anything surprising or were their responses basically following their party political affiliations?
3: No, we are facing uh two bills at the moment, two government bills which will and um extend the military service for you know soldiers at the age of uh, the mandatory service for soldiers at the age of 18 uh, they need to extend that because they don't have enough soldiers so mandatory will go up to 3 years and also huge huge uh, expansion of of um, reserve duty so people that are out of the military at the age of 21 will be immediately recruited to reserve and then serve more days and more years Um, And and these two bills have, you know, really rattled Israel's society because you have so many people who are being exempted from military service, uh, mostly Jewish uh, ultra Orthodox but also Israel's Arab population. So I approached 120 people. chambers or you know I called you know I called some of them in whatsapp actually uh you know in israel ministers and mks they do they do answer in whatsapp um so i i you know i corresponded with with all of them i mean not all of them answered but what what is interesting is that you see a huge gap between the polling in the right wing among Likud member members and and religious Zionist members, you know, their public, the people who are serving, saying they need to change these exemptions. So you have a huge gap between the the public and the members of the Knesset or ministers. You don't see that gap in center and left. And you don't see that gap in ultra Orthodox and Arabs, because, you know, in those societies, those MKs or ministers, they just answer, no, you know, we don't want to recruit them. Both, both, Arab society, and um, you know, we don't have, we, we don't want to have a mandatory service in our society. But when you approach Likudniks, and this is the ruling party, there, you know, there is the big, big gap. And we see this, you know, we see in the polls. You have like 52 percent of the society who says we need an immediate, you know, draft for everyone. And then when you ask Likudniks in the polls again, not my questionnaire, but the polling. 47% of the Likudniks say immediate, immediate draft to everyone, including ultra-orthodox. So again, you know, the, those questions were in order to show the growing unhappiness or, or or disdain between the people who are voting for the Likud or are voting for a religion Zionist and their leaders. Um and it, it shows that.
0: So if I'm understanding you properly, Tal, it sounds like Likud, which always has presented itself as a center-right leading party, is actually reflecting the general Israeli uh, feeling, the general Israeli population's feeling that, that the ultra-Orthodox should be recruited, but yet the party leadership is signing on to this bill or signing on to the idea that the, uh, that the service for ultra-Orthodox should be deferred.
3: And Because of this gap and this problem that was created between their own base, they are now they might not you know go ahead and enact those bills, in order to pi- bypass the the frustration from their public, they're just not going to to enact them. What they will do, and this is a suggestion that came for around four members of the Knesset that I spoke with from the Likud, they say we might put like an executive order for a, for a period of a one year. So the recruitment will be extended, but only for one year. And that means, Amanda, that they are not solving the problem. They're just postponing it. And we do know that the military is in a dire need for people, because as you all know, we have around 500 soldiers dead from October 7th and then from the um, from the maneuver inside Gaza, about 500 soldiers. And you have thousands, probably around... You know three thousand or four thousand of soldiers who were wounded and are they will not be able to go back into battles anymore they you know either severely or lightly but um, um, but the numbers are very, very high so and, and and the military because they have now a war in Gaza but also a coming up war in Lebanon, but also problems on the Syrian borders and also problems on the Judea and Samaria areas, Um, definitely in order to look forward for the next couple of years, they need to recruit, you know, thousands more each year, not just to overcome the losses, but also in order to prepare.
1: Jessica, weigh in here. No, I just wanted to add that um, also that the army is going to the michinot, the pre-army preparatory programs. Sometimes kids do a second year. Anyone who's doing that, what we call the Shanabet, the second year of those programs, which is sometimes six months, sometimes it's 10 months, those kids have been called up early. And I know that um, pre-Army programs have also had kids who are in the middle of their—it's a gap year program, right? So the kids who are in the middle of those gap year programs are being um, recruited early months early. Now, that's not a huge number, but that's it's in the hundreds, kids who are going to be going in early in March instead of in August. um, And they are cutting short this leadership program, This essentially uh, another kind of extra training that they would have had in order to be counted in the recruits of the army.
0: Correct. One of my twins is actually in that situation, and he'll be recruited in April rather than in August, along with his twin sister, Jessica, Since you are here, let's hear about your trip to the United States. You recently braved the very cold of the East Coast of the U.S. and spoke to numerous Jewish communities. So we haven't yet had a chance to chat. And I'm just wondering, what was your sense on their take of the war from there?
1: So. Obviously, I spoke with in Jewish communities, right? I spoke to day schools, to high school students, and to synagogues. And, you know, when you're speaking with groups like that, you're talking to people who are very much thinking about this, and they are listening to the podcast and reading the Times of Israel very regularly in addition to other media. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to make sense of it. Um, you know, in their, in these areas, Baltimore, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. New York, New Jersey, you see posters mm-hmm. of hostages. Um, sometimes I would see people walk by the, the posters of hostages. I'm thinking of Broadway on the Upper West Side in New York City. And there was one storefront that was plastered with posters of the hostages. Mm-hmm. And people would stop and say, well, what is this? So those were pastors by. Obviously, in the Jewish communities, everyone knows about it, but they don't necessarily know the stories of the people. And we would, I would sort of tell the stories of some of the hostages and who they are and what they've been going through and who they were before and who they are now and what that means for their families and their communities. There's also a lot of trouble in the sense that they're experiencing themselves. There's the anti-Semitic aspects of life, which comes through a lot for academics. A lot of adults talked about uh, who who work in academia, spoke about what it's like to deal with colleagues who are pushing at them or won't look at them in the hallways, or will post things in social media um, about what's going on in Gaza and Really keep on throwing that at, at them and saying, Well, do you care about Gaza? And that's a very uncomfortable, difficult conversation that they're having over and over again. And I also saw people, uh, spoke to people whose kids might have started their freshman year in college at a certain university and experienced such a wave of anti Semitism or anti Israel sentiment that I met a couple of kids who decided to drop out for the year and sort of rethink where they're going to go next year or transferred to other schools because they just felt like the they were walking through pro-Palestinian rallies all the time. And that's a lot of what you're hearing. High school students, for instance, really wanted to understand uh, the situation of hostages their age or evacuees their age in Israel who are literally not in their homes, not going to have their senior year experiences. Uh, They were very, very interested in that. And of course, there's this huge wave of solidarity missions. A lot of these people had come on missions to Israel or were planning to join their synagogue mission or their community mission or their federation mission, because they want to understand what it's like to come for this four-day mission, to volunteer, to pick lemons, to perhaps go to one of the uh, Gaza border communities to see the devastation for themselves and to really understand it. One rabbi I, I met with spoke about um, going... He, he's a, it's a New York-based rabbi and he went into the city on over Hanukkah and gathered about 50, 20-somethings from his community who all live in New York and work in New York and they met together and lit candles and they wanted to talk about how do they talk to their colleagues about this? How do they... Broach this subject if it's broached to them. How do they respond? A lot of them, you know, they're university, they're college graduates, but they've never had to deal with something like this. To talk about what happened to them and to people they might know, and how to respond if someone talks to them about again, it's it's about Gaza. Okay, this is what's happening in Israel, but what about what what is happening in Gaza? And how do Israelis, how do Jews feel about that? There was a lot of discussion of that, and I would say the final piece that a lot of people asked me about is: should I still be reading the New York Times? Should I still be reading the Washington Post? How do I? How am I supposed to react when I read something that feels blatantly anti-Israel? So we talked a lot about it, and I told them I read the New York Times, um, that it's not something I'm going to stop reading, and I think you read you read uh, a newspaper like the New York Times differently than you're going to read the Times of Israel, which is a more local experience. So these were the, these were the questions, these were the conversations, lots of questions, lots of discussion. Um, it's a complicated time. It's complicated for them, just like it is for us, just differently. So you don't feel the weight of it, obviously, in quite the same way as you do here.
0: Jessica, thank you so much for bringing that update. Jessica Tal, thanks for joining
3: me today. Thank you, Amanda, and Shabbat Shalom.
0: Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to all. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom.